you so much. But turn with me your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. And again, we're not uh, working our way through a particular uh, book of the Bible this fall, but going to uh, different texts and uh, looking at uh, different portions of God's Word for a while. And this morning we're in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Talking about God's response to sin this morning from Genesis 6. Let us hear God's word. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. There, nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty-five years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward also, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for another opportunity to spend time studying the riches and the glories of your word. We thank you for this great gift and the written word of the living God. And we pray that our time this, in it this morning would be blessed by you, that the Holy Spirit would take it and open our understanding to it and open our hearts to receive it and apply it to us as our need exists. We thank you so much for your grace toward us and pray that it might be clear today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been working our way through the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism during morning worship. I noticed this morning we're up to question number 14. One of the early questions was the question, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this about God. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Now those are accurate biblical descriptions of the nature of God, but when we talk about God being a spirit, and not having a body, parts of a body, or not having passions, it's easy for us to get the idea that God does not have emotions or feelings. 
it can convey the idea that God is this stoic figure in heaven who does whatever he wants and it is, does not impact him emotionally. But I would submit to you that it's especially a danger for those of us in the Reformed circles who hold to a high view of God. It's easy for us to read from Psalm 115 like we did this morning in our call to worship and say, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Which is true. But to think that somehow He does that in an uncaring and unfeeling way. Nothing could be farther from the truth. You see, we are made in the image of God. And one of the things that characterizes us having God's image in us is that we are emotional beings. God is an emotional God. And one of the things that He gives to us as a part of being made in His image is the ability to express emotions and to be emotional. You see, God is not unaffected by the things that happen in his life. He's not unaffected by the things in your life. He's not unaffected by the things you do in life. He is very much affected by them. And we see that, I think, very clearly in the passage I read this morning from Genesis chapter 6. The title of my sermon today is God's Response to Sin. And we're going to see that a major part of God's response to sin or the way that God responds to sin is emotional. I'm afraid sometimes we forget that. You know, we know all about sin and we know that God doesn't like sin and that God must punish sin and that God for believers has placed our sin upon His Son. However, it does not compute to us sometimes. God is not just an objective observer to our sin. But the God responds emotionally to our sin. He has an emotional reaction to it. And I think our passage this morning shows us that very clearly. The question of the day is, what is God's response to our sin? And there are three ways that he responds described in our text and the first response of God to our sin is a response of sorrow a response of sorrow look at verse 6 we read this the Lord was sorry think about that the Lord was sorry sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. What a shocking statement. You know, when I ask the question, how did we get there so fast? Because just five chapters earlier in Genesis chapter 1, we find God creating the world, and on the sixth day, God created who? What? Great man. And he he created man, as I said, in his own image. And he breathed into man a living soul. 
Then he looked down upon this man that he had made, and every day up until that point, he looked at what he made, and he said, it is good. When he looked down upon this man he had made, he said, it is very good. And then, of course, you move into Genesis chapter 3, and you find that somehow God would come and have fellowship with this man he had created in the cool of the evening. He says, all that is true. You wonder how it can be that now, here in Genesis chapter 6, God says he was sorry he had even made man and put him on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart over it. What had changed? What had altered so dramatically God's attitude toward man? It was, of course, man's sin. You'll notice in our text, the first part of it in verses 1 through 4, references made to the sons of God and to the daughters of men. Now, there's been a lot of speculation over the years as to exactly what that means. Uh, some have said that these sons of God were angelic beings of some kind who came down and intermarried with the daughters of men. You'll see that's not my position. Others have come up with what I consider even more bizarre interpretations. However, it appears to me that all those verses referred to is the simple fact that we find all the way through the Bible and that is there are only two classes of people in the world. Only two groups of people in God's eyes. There are the sons of God and there are the daughters of men using those terms generically. That is there are those who are, people, those who are God's people and those who are not. There are believers, there are unbelievers. There are Christians, and there are non-Christians. All the way through the Bible, it is made clear that you are either in one group or the other. God views you today one way or the other. Do you understand that? There is no middle ground in God's eyes. This morning, you are either in Christ or outside of Him. You either trust in Him for your salvation or you don't. You're either on your way to heaven or, shall I be honest? You're on your way to hell. All the way through the Bible it is clear there are only two groups of people. Those whom I believe are referred to in this passage as the sons of God and the daughters of men, those who belong to God or those who are just of this world. It's always been that way. All the way from Adam and Eve who had Cain and Abel, one righteous, one unrighteous, and then uh, when unrighteous Cain killed Abel, Seth was born, you had these two lines Descending from Cain and Seth. One appears to be rather unrighteous, characterized by a man named Lamech. 
who was an ungodly somebody. And out of the line of Seth, there were produced, produced a man named Enoch, of whom the Bible says Enoch walked with God and he was not. We're told that after Seth, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Two lines of people. But over the generations, the distinctiveness between those two lines began to diminish. And the righteous began to live more like the unrighteous. Isn't it strange that it happens that way so often? Don't you find that odd? That even in a culture like ours, the impact of the lives of the unrighteous tends to affect the behavior of the righteous more than the other way around? If there's anything on our text perhaps related to today that ought to get your attention, it's that. Because over the generations, the line of demarcation, the distinctness between those who were of the righteous and unrighteous became less and less visible. Until only, finally, there was basically one. And that's when God looked down upon this man that he had made. And he was not just some unconcerned bystander to what had happened. Was not unaffected emotionally by the fact that the believers were looking to the unbelievers for their wives and they based their choice of a mate purely on external appearance and not upon the condition of their heart. You know the Bible tells us verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. What is God's response to sin? How does God respond to sin? He responds to it in sorrow. Do you get that? Sin breaks God's heart. It makes him sad. And it's not just sin in general, but it's your sin in particular. You are parents. You know how it is when your children disobey what you told them to do. It, it makes you sad, doesn't it? it? It breaks your heart that your children are disobedient. Again, God is not an unemotional being. He is not unaffected by what you do, but He is very much affected, impacted by your sin. Your sin breaks the heart of God. And it grieves him. But there's a second response of God to sin in our text. And it's a response of judgment. A response of judgment. Look at what God said in verse 7. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. From man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. Then he says it again. For I am sorry that I have made them. God's sorrow over sin 
leads to his judgment of sin. Now, I know the judgment of God upon sin is not a very popular subject today. Many people would rather ignore it. It's much more comfortable to think about a God of love and a God of mercy, a God of compassion and a God of kindness than it is to think of God of judgment. The Bible is clear in teaching that even though God is all those other positive things, even though he is a God of love and mercy and compassion and kindness, he is also a God who is holy and just. And in his holiness and justice, he must deal with sin in a holy and just way. You know, sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. It's that moment God's judgment began to be felt in the world. It's when Adam and Eve were told they would no longer live in the Garden of Eden. They were cast out of it. And they would surely die. From that time on, every human being has been born with a fallen and sinful nature. And now, again, by the time you come to Genesis chapter 6, sin has become a serious problem. Real serious. So much so, again, God is sorry he made man. He's grieved in his heart over it. And as God looked down upon this man that he had made, this man in his own image, this man upon whom he had pronounced this great blessing, it is very good. He looks down upon it and he sees it is so seriously entwined in sin that he said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. That's a pronouncement judgment and God in his judgment began to do exactly that to blot out man whom he had made and as you know he did it by means of the great flood for 40 days and 40 nights water poured down from heaven until finally all there was was water. Except for those who were spared. Every man, every woman, every child, every animal was blotted out. Blotted out from the face of the earth. They experienced the just response of a holy God to sin. Which is a response of judgment. Now people tend to make light of the of the flood. Oh, it's just a myth. Just a story. Or it was just a regional catastrophe. And not a universal expression of the 
judgment of God upon a sinful world. We dare not minimize the story of the flood. God gives it three chapters in his book. The story of the great flood is in it for a reason. And it's there to show us how much God hates sin. And now in his holiness, he must respond to it in judgment. Now, the Bible says God does not change. He still hates sin. Hear that? God still hates sin. And he continues to judge sinners. Now it's true, Carrie mentioned in the Sunday school this morning, it's true, after the flood, God put the rainbow in, in the sky and it was a sign. It was a sign of his promise. I'll never destroy the earth by water again. Doesn't mean God will never judge the earth again. The Bible's clear there is coming another day of judgment. And God will not judge it by means of water, but He'll judge it by means of fire. And anyone who's ever doubted about God's response to sin being one of judgment will doubt no longer. But then there's a third response of God to our sin. And that's the response of grace. Hear me now. There's a third response, and it's a response of grace. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's that great, profound theological word again, the word but. And that little word draws a strong contrast between how God responds to sin in judgment and how God responds to sin in grace. Look, folks, there are no sweeter words found anywhere in the 66 books of the Bible than what we find in Genesis 6-8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. See, that was Noah's hope. And that was Noah's assurance. The knowledge that he had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I would submit to you this morning, that is your only hope and your only assurance too that you have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The only way for anyone to be saved is to find favor in God's eyes. Paul says in Ephesians 2, for by grace, by favor, for by God's grace or favor are you saved through faith. What do we call this that Noah experienced here if it's not grace? We can say it that way. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And why is that? Oh, we're told some very positive things about Noah. We didn't read them. Verse 9 tells us some very positive things about Noah. He was a righteous man. He was blameless in his time. and He walked with God. Sinners, we're told that after. We are told that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, there was nothing in Noah. Nothing about Noah that caused him to find favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, favor 
the favor of God or the grace of God it is never earned it's never deserved it's always a gift Noah found favor in the eyes of God simply because it pleased God for him to find favor and for God to show him grace that ark I want you to understand that ark floating there upon the waters of the flood was the evidence of God's grace and favor to Noah. That ark was his means of rescue and deliverance from the judgment of God. And I want you to see this morning, that is what the cross is to us. The cross is the evidence of God's favor and grace to us. And it is the symbol of our only means of rescue and deliverance from the judgment of God. Without the ark, without the ark, Noah would have perished. Do you get that? And without the cross... Without the cross, you and I will perish too. So there's a sense in which that ark floating upon the waters of judgment pointed ahead to the cross of Christ through which you and I are spared the just judgment of God for our sin. You see, that is the heart of the gospel. God not only responds to sin and sorrow and judgment, He also responds to it in grace. And the fact that God responds to our sin and grace does not mean that He overlooks it. It doesn't mean that He excuses it. It doesn't mean that He turns His back and pretends like it's not there. He doesn't sweep it under the rug so he can no longer see it. No, it means that God has dealt with your sin and my sin in another way than judging us for it. And you know what that means is God took your sin and He took my sin and He put it upon His Son so that His Son took a just judgment that you deserved for your sin and I deserved for my sin so that we could experience the grace and favor of God Isaiah 53 describes it so well we will close basically with verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 53. Where the word of God says this, Surely our griefs he himself bore, that is Christ, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, spent of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but 
The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see, God still responds to sin and sorrow. It breaks his heart. And God still responds to sin and judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that God has put the judgment you deserve for your sin on his son. Which enables him then to respond to your sin in grace. And to show you his favor. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. The gift of his grace. Pictured in the ark. And realized in the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray that this morning you would make it real to all of our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we sing our last hymn. I would say this, that if this morning through the preaching of the word you have found yourself unsure of your position in Christ, if you're not clear if you have truly trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, or maybe you know in your heart of hearts that you're still outside of him, that I would call you to Christ. Call you to put your faith and your trust in him, to believe in him alone for salvation as he's freely offered to us in the gospel. If you would like to do that, you may see me, see one of the elders, and we will certainly help you to walk down that road to saving faith in Jesus. Let's stand together and